Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe. Lord, we lift up your name today. We pray, I pray, my prayer is that through this message, that people will hear what they need to hear in order to continue to lift up your name and glorify you throughout the world in which we go. In the name of Messiah, we pray all these things. Bishim Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Okay, I'm going to tell a joke which was not authorized by anybody because I can do that. There once were four well-learned rabbis and they were disagreeing on a particular subject of rabbinic law. doesn't matter which subject at this point. What's important is the fact that three of them said option A was the right choice. And one of them was sure he was right, but he said option B is the way it should be done. They argued about this for months. Every time they'd get together, they'd be up in each other's faces yelling. He said, no, no, no. And But they'll still, three of them said option A and one of them said option B. And they could not resolve this issue. Finally, they went to Jerusalem. They went to Hezekiah's Tunnel where you can get into where the closest places you can get to the Holy of Holies. And they all prayed there together, Lord, please show us the answer to this question. And the bot coal resounded through the rocks and said, it's option B, he's right. And the other three looked at him and said, okay, so now it's three to two. <laughs> that really has very little to do with what I'm talking about today, but it's a good joke. All right. And now we all read the Torah portion this week, right? And we read the updated Torah portion because it's the first of the month? No, yes, a couple nods, okay. Usually this is, usually Tazria is read along with Mitzorah in most years. Uh, because it's, well first of all, Tazria is very short and we're in a leap year so it's very, the year is very long so we separate them out this year. Um, but it means usually during this reading, we're talking about leprosy. Because the majority, Mitzorah is much longer than Tazria, so we usually teach from Mitzorah. And it's all about leprosy, about how you decide what is and it isn't leprosy, and how you make sacrifices to cleanse leprosy. Um, because of that, because we always teach those two together, how many people think that Tazria and Mitzorah are basically the same word, just conjugated a little differently? Anyone? Good, you're all smarter. They are very different words. Uh, tazria comes from the root zara, which means seed. My wife actually saved me an avocado seed to show you, which is still sitting on my desk at home. It's a good place where it doesn't do any good there. But at least it's not going to get chucked at anyone. And mitzora uh, comes from the word tzarat, which means leprosy, uh, which represents death. It's interesting that one... Tazria, the seed, represents the very beginning of life. In your Bible, it's probably translated as when you conceive or when a woman conceives. It's usually how it's written and gives birth to a child. So you have two topics that are, one is that discusses the very beginning of life and the other one is symbolic of the very end of life. And yet they're really about the same topic. Even though they're describing totally different things. Uh, for one thing, in both context, both readings, it talks about things that make you unclean and how to, what sacrifices and ceremonies will resolve that uncleanness. 
I should apologize now. My throat is going. So if it, no, I have water. I have plenty of water. Lukewarm water. Ta-da. Uh, but I've had, I don't know if it's a cold or because the weather keeps switching back and forth between really nice and hot and dry. But anyway, all the uh, Tazria and Mitzvah are completely different, but talking about similar things. And all that's cool, but guess what? Uh, this isn't just Shabbat Tazria. Oh, no, thank you. Uh, can anybody tell me the date today? Okay, anybody else? First of Nisan, yeah, that's the one I was looking for. That makes this not only... This, this is Shabbat HaChodesh, which is why we had some different readings. If you read the same readings that are normal for the for Parshat Tazria, you read the wrong Haftarah, and... Actually, I'm not sure. Do, do we change our Bichar reading, John, for the Shabbat Chodesh? We didn't. Okay. So it goes along with it anyway. Uh, we, we, had a, we added a whole different section to the parasha. Um, do you all know what the Maftir is? Yes? When you, in, in more, more Orthodox synagogues, they read the whole portion. And the first reading is, starts with what we read, read here usually. And this, there are seven. And the seventh one is the Maftir. That's the one that's the most honored. And this week, the Maftir is completely... It's from the book of Exodus. And we were in the book of Leviticus. And what it is, it's the instructions for the sacrifice of the Pesach event in Egypt. So we're not talking about the holiday of Pesach so much. We're talking about the original Pesach sacrifice there. Since I'm going to be talking today about sacrifices and how they bring one closer to God, I'm going to describe there are five basic types of sacrifices. Raise your hand if you knew that already. Okay. If you can name them, just come on up here and teach it myself because I don't want... Okay. The first one we have is the Ola, the burnt offering. Uh, it's given completely Adonai to express a desire to commune with him, to be one with him. And incidentally, it also expiates sin because how can one be with God while tainted with sin? Next, you have the Zabach Shlamim, the peace offering, or the fellowship offering, it's sometimes called. This one actually brings one into union with the Almighty. Sharing a space, a time, sharing a meal with the Lord. And it thanks Him for His gifts He's given us. Next is the chatat, the sin offering. Um, it atones for, uh, which I should point out, in Hebrew, atone doesn't mean the same as forgive. Atone means to cover up. Uh, it's the word uh, kafar, like for Yom Kippur. Um, it cannot cover up an intentional sin, but an unintentional sin that you know you committed, you can make a sacrifice, or you could then, and atone for that sin. Next you have the Asham offering, which is very much like the Chatat offering, except it's for when you're not sure if you sinned or not. That sounds weird, but think back over the last 24 hours of your life and you will get where that's coming from. Has, has anyone else had time about the last I'm not sure if that was a sin or not. Am I the only one? Okay. Uh, then we have the 
The last one is the mincha, which is also the name of one of our daily services. Uh, but it's the food and drink offerings. And what it represents is the devotion of one's efforts and production. The things that you make, the things that you do, you devote that to the Lord. Like the verse, all that you say, all that you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord. And of course, there's also, besides the Pesach, there's the uh, para aduma, the red heifer, which is completely in the category by itself and doesn't really relate to the other ones. Now, all these offerings really have the same purpose, but they go about it in different ways. Um, the peace offering especially is meant to symbolize fellowship between the offerer and God. That's very clear on the surface. But all of the offerings are called korbanot. A korban, korban comes from the word in Hebrew that means to bring near, to bring close to. All of the sacrifices are designed to bring people closer to God. Uh, in fact, korbanot can really be, the, the word we call sacrifice could really best be translated as a thing of nearness. Now, all these different sacrifices, and you don't need to keep them all straight in your head, because you're not going to the temple and having to make the right one. We don't do that anymore because there's no temple in which to do it. In fact, there's some debate on if there were a temple, would Messianic believers make sacrifices? We'll actually cover a little bit of that later. Um, The Pesach offering shares many but not all similarities with the sin offering. Because we all know that uh, Yeshua's death on the cross atoned for our sins, right? It did more than that. It forgave our sins. The Pesach offering cleanses from sin or ritual impurity. And the Pesach shares some, but not all, of its attributes with the peace offering. Because it does bring the offerer into fellowship with God. When they, when the Egypt, when the Israelites made that first Passover sacrifice in Egypt, it brought them into fellowship with God as God's people once again. They had sort of backslid away while they were slaves in Egypt. They'd greatly forgotten who their God was. But now they were back. They were God's people again. And of course we know that Yeshua's death brings us back into relationship with God, which we can't have because there's that gap between sinful and sinless. Just like the red heifer, the Pesach sacrifice is unique. There's no other sacrifice that's exactly like it. In some ways, I think, because it actually precedes all the other sacrifices. You see, in Torah, we're giving all these sacrifices... Uh, mostly denoted in the book of Leviticus. And obviously, the Passover is not the first sacrifice in Scripture. But it's the first sacrifice that's given in conjunction with God's covenant at Sinai. Because it came first, it doesn't follow the same strictures and rules that the other sacrifices do that all have clearly delineated things. Um, it has very specific rules, but they're not the same as the other sacrifices. In many ways, it's the archetype 
for all the other sacrifices. What it does, it, it takes the goals of all the other sacrifices together and it does all of their goal of bringing us nearer to God, but it does it in a much more complete way than any of the other five can. All right, raise your hand if you're lost. I, okay, well, where, 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 are you, where are you getting lost? Okay. All right. To, to sum up, you have lots of sacrifices that each in some small way bring you closer to God. The Passover sacrifice does the same as all of them, but it does it more completely than any of them. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, all right, where was I? Oh, okay. I want to say at, at least the first Passover sacrifice did that. Uh, the sacrifice of the Pesach lamb as described in the Moftir portion today, which should be on your screen if I'm very fortunate. It literally protected God's people. Those who were obedient enough to do it from the curse of death. And it initiated the release from bondage in Egypt. Of that, of course, is why it's a type of Mashiach's death on the cross. As his sacrifice reflected the same freedom from the bondage of sin but in a much greater way because his sacrifice was greater. And it also frees us from the curse of eternal death. And again, greater than the sacrifice in Egypt because it's greater sacrifice. Each one of those two paschal sacrifices, the, the one in Egypt and the one on Golgotha, they inaugurated a new period in covenant relationship between God and his people. It did it one time. Didn't need to be done over again. Yeah. It is a type of Yeshua. It means it foreshadows Yeshua. It's, it's not... The actual sacrifice was a foreshadowing of Yeshua's sacrifice on the cross. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Where was it? Okay. Um, so all those Passover sacrifices in the temple and the tabernacle for, for about... 1,500 years between the Passover and Yeshua's coming. What did all those Passover sacrifices do as far as bringing you closer to the Lord? Honestly, nothing. They didn't do anything. They were a memorial. What they were meant to do is to remind you of the sacrifice that was made that brought that relationship into being. Right, exactly. The scripture says, do this in remembrance of me. And do this in remembrance as a memorial to the, when I led you out of Egypt. Uh, there were more, that's Exodus twelve fourteen. They all died simply to make sure that God's people never forgot what he did for them. So that every Israelite could be a witness to the greatness of Adonai's mercy and salvation. 
because they had experienced the memorial every year from the time they were very small children and very impressionable. So it became not just a story that they told every year, a story that they knew and recited. It became a part of their identity, their national identity and their personal identity. We all know people, and we see this brought up in in churches a lot. We all know people, well, a a good example, uh, uh, in uh, the late Middle Ages, many countries were becoming Christian countries, right? How many people in those countries do you think were actually ardent believers in in the church and in Yeshua? A very small percentage, most of them. Basically, if the king said, I'm a Christian now, then the country is a Christian nation. And the rest of the people are going, okay, I don't care. That's why we need to impress the identity. We have people in churches today who call themselves Christians, and they may be sitting in the pews and singing along. They may be following the Bible studies. I'll give it to you a secret. Some of them may be up teaching. Not here. I don't want to give that impression here. But it happens. I've heard of pastors who have been teaching for decades. And all of a sudden they realize they don't have that personal relationship with the Lord that they've been talking about all this time. And they come to faith and they begin a whole new life. Often already leading congregations. And at that point, it becomes not just something they teach. It becomes a part of their identity. Uh, the same idea is there in our Seder. We can't have a sacrifice without the temple. And so we have the Seder every year to remind us of the sacrifice that, got, that was made to bring us closer to the Lord. As much as some of you may hate to admit it, it's even there in the monthly communion ceremony in your local church. Or, in, or believe it or not, in the Mass, the, the Eucharist at every Mass in a Catholic church. The idea is there that this is to remind us of the sacrifice that was made to bring me into relationship with the Lord. And yes, we all think there are errors in the theologies of most of these other groups. Guess what? You should probably realize we probably have errors here too. We try our best, but we're people. We're going to get things wrong. So let's realize we have errors and move on. Because basically what we're all doing, whether here or at a church, or, you know, I will, I, will, I will exclude some of the weird cultic things going on out there. But in the vast majority of churches across this country and around the world, they're just doing their best to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through his son Yeshua, no matter what names they use, no matter what ceremonies they use to do so. So once again, once again I'm coming back to my normal point of don't be little people because they don't worship the same way you do. If they're worshiping the right God, great. What we all want is to be an effective witness to the people of the world 
about our Lord and Savior. Yes? Yes. We want to be the picture of Messiah. We want to be an apostle. We want to be Yohanan the Immerser, proclaiming the coming of the Lord. Yes? That's as exciting as I'm going to get today. I'm not a Southern Baptist preacher. But, but as we all want to be apostles and great witnesses and telling people the world about the coming of the Lord, how's that going? Yeah, it, it, it could use some work, I think. Do you ever wonder why? In Luke's gospel that we read this morning, Yohanan himself gives us a good picture of good witness in the Rikh portion for today. I'm going to go a little outside the reading because we're going to put it in a little context of what was going on here. Because just reading that, you get the idea that John just woke up one day and said, hey, I should go see if this guy's really the Messiah. What happened was, the, uh, do you all remember the story of the widow of Nain, or Nain? It's a funny word. It means, it means, the word means home, but that was her, her village. It sounds like a nice place to live. You just call it home. But anyway, after the widow's son was resurrected, a lot of people were talking about Yeshua. All over the country. Word spread fast. They were all talking about this, this tremendous tzaddik, this holy man. And apparently not only was he a holy man, he was a prophet. And quite possibly the prophet about whom Moses had spoken. And word of this obviously got back to John the Baptist. And he, being a careful witness, who wanted to make sure of his facts before he shared them, unlike people who won't be named in the modern media. Just like all of us, before we share our meme on Facebook, right? We all check our facts and make sure that it's truthful. Yeah, but maybe not always, but we should. Anyway, he sent two of his students to the source to ask Yeshua himself what was up. Now, to make sure we're on the same page, literally... Let's just read that passage together. We heard it this morning. We're going to go... Actually, yes, we did read this this morning. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Yeshua, saying, Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another? And yes, I'm reading from King James because I like it. When the men were come unto him, they said, Yochanan the Immerser hath sent us to thee, saying, Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another. And in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind, he gave sight. Then Yeshua answering said unto them, Go your way and tell Yochanan what things you have seen and heard, how the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, raised, And to the poor, the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. We have two great examples of witnessing here. 
Yeshua witnessed to John about himself, clearly in such a way that John could not possibly misunderstand him. So that John could be a witness then to others about him. Now before we dive deeper into why these are good examples, let's sidetrack very briefly into what makes a good witness, biblically. Start with the Hebrew word for a witness is edah. Most, some of you already knew that. All of you knew that, right? Just nod. You can, you can fib at this point. Just nod and say you knew that word. The Hebrew witness is an edah. It's derived from the root ad, which literally means on or upon. My tablet is ad habima. That makes sense? Okay. It means the witness was there. It was on the spot. I can witness to you about Baia's lap blanket because I'm here. I can see it. It's right there. I can't tell you about what what blanket she was wearing earlier because I wasn't here. I can pretty well make a good educated guess that before I came up here, she was probably wearing the same blanket on her lap. But I can't tell you for sure. I couldn't be. I couldn't really witness to that. The Greek word, katamartoreo, katamartoreo. Go ahead and say that once. Katamartoreo. It's a fun word, isn't it? It's even more explicit. <clears throat> Kata is fundamentally the same word as the Hebrew ad. It means to be there amidst and amongst at the place. Martoreo, and yes, that's the word from which we get our modern English word martyr. Um, it means to report or tell about something. So a martyr wasn't just someone who died. A martyr is someone who died telling the story who died in order that the story could be told of the Gospels. In both Hebrew and Greek, then, a witness is someone who was there. And therefore, he's qualified to tell about it. There's no hearsay. They experienced it firsthand. As a brief aside, that's one of the rules that was used for uh, canon when they decided what book should be put in the New Testament. It had to be books written by someone who either saw Yeshua in person or someone who was taught by someone who saw Yeshua in person. That's why a lot of the books that you read online and can find in your bookstores, if you can find a bookstore anymore, um, the Gospel of Barnabas isn't in there because Barnabas doesn't fit those categories. And honestly, the author of Barnabas, the gospel, the author of the Gospel of Barnabas, was not the Barnabas we read about in Scripture. Um. Now, all that will become much more important later, as we discuss the fact that none of us was there. I wasn't in Egypt. I wasn't at Golgotha. 
Were any of you? If so, I want to borrow your time machine. Or watch out for your, you're probably wearing a thick collar because there could be only one. I Nobody got that joke. He did. Now, John wasn't a witness in the ancient sense to the miracles of Yeshua. Look back to the He never saw Yeshua perform a miracle. What he had experienced was the Ruach of Adonai resting upon Yeshua. And the Bat Kol declaring, this is God's son. That's what he could witness to. And John was being a good witness because he knew that even he himself could interpret things wrong. Any of you remember, any of you ever remember how you did something yesterday? And maybe you put, you remember I put this, I put this right here. Then you come back the next day and find out you put it over here. Did it move? Did, did the, did, did gremlins come in the night and, and take whatever you put down and put it somewhere else? Or did you just remember it wrong? Whenever there's a traffic accident, they take witness testimonies from the people at the scene. And from the witness testimonies, they can find out for sure that a car or truck that was either blue, white, green, or red, driven by a man or a woman who was short, tall, and fat, and skinny, and young and old, and had a beard and was clean-shaven, uh, ran the light where the other car also ran the light because they were both obviously green and red at the same time. This is a normal state of affairs for how people recollect things. We remember what's important to us. Now, hopefully, if we saw the Spirit of God resting upon Yeshua, that would be important enough that we'd remember it pretty clearly. But we all misremember things all the time. Everyone except my wife. She always remembers everything perfectly. She, she's amazing that way. Gee, you're pretty. <laughs> no, I, I do. I, if someone asks me about a place I don't remember, or a place I do remember, and they say, uh, what color is such and such a house? I may be pretty sure that that house was blue. I remember it being blue. But you know, if I have to go to court and testify about it, I'm going to drive by that house and check and make sure that it really is blue. Yochanan and Yeshua had the same message while in their earthly ministries. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the basic message both of them gave. Yochanan just had to make sure that the kingdom about which he was testifying was the same one that Yeshua was teaching and that Yeshua was who Yochanan thought he was. That's part of being a good witness. Now, Yeshua's testimony was even more firsthand. He is the best witness in this story because he uses the proper technique for witnessing. When Yochanan's students, his disciples, asked him the question, he could have just said, yes, I am. I am the prophet like Moses who came. What are you, what are you morons? You can't figure that out? Look what I've been doing. 
But you know what? If Yeshua wasn't divine, he could very easily lie about it. So, you can, depending on how much you trust somebody, you can take their word or not. It's like the old thing, are you, are you going to believe what I say? Or are you going to believe your own eyes? Yeshua's response instead, you know, look at verse 21 in the passage we just read. Yeshua cured many of their infirmities and plagues and evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. In Isaiah, I think it should be up there, these were things that were prophesied that the Messiah would do. And Yochanan and his students knew Isaiah. They knew that the prophet who was to come would do these things. And so Yeshua did them. He didn't have to say, yes, I'm the guy. He could say, look at the evidence and make your own decision. He demonstrated the answer. He did it in such a way that John or anyone familiar with the prophets could not help but recognize Yeshua performed the very miracles that Isaiah had said would herald the Messiah. This is what made Yeshua such an excellent witness. He didn't just say what he was testifying. He didn't just have first-hand experience of what he was testifying. He demonstrated it. A good example here would be uh, Doug. Are, are, are you? Uh, can you build a good house? Okay. Like, can, can you install the electricity in the house and make it really, really good? Okay. Uh, how do I know? You just told me. I so I, I should just believe him, right? Yeah, you, you, you take me to a job he's done and say, see, here's my work. That way you know it's true. Or he covers up his badness really well. Could go either way. But Yeshua didn't have badness, so he couldn't do that. So Yeshua was good because he, he demonstrated and he lived what he was talking about. He could have taken the students to the widow of Nain and said, let her tell you about the raising of the dead. He could have taken them to Jerusalem and said, talk to this guy over here. He was blind from birth and now he can see because of me. No, he lived it right there and then in front of them. He wasn't having a bad day and he couldn't quite get up the gumption to do it. He just did it. And so, by a very circuitous route all the way around everything, we arrive back to us. The title of this message is, Can I Get a Witness? I've had that song stuck in my head. Can I get a witness? Come on, clap. Can I get a witness? Yay! Okay, that's enough. Stop that. Now, looking all out of all of us here, can I get a witness? I can stand up here and teach you about the commandments. I've done it before. God willing, I'll do it again. I can tell you what the commentator, various commentators and rabbis and sages and pastors have said about these commandments. And it can be very truthful. If I do it in condemnation, 
Am I a good witness to the gospel? I can tell you how much Yeshua loves you. But if it's just words, there's not a whole lot of point in even hearing them, is there? I can tell you about Adonai's righteousness and our, sorry, my sinful nature. When I'm at my best, I have a sinful nature. I can tell you that. But does that make me a witness of the gospel? Actually, yeah, it does, but not a, not a very good one. It basically, it makes me someone who just talks about the gospel. I and you need to take Yeshua's example to heart in witnessing. Now, I'm not saying if you get the opportunity to give someone a, a, a gospel tract or sit down and, and just talk to them about, about Yeshua, that that's a bad thing. Absolutely not. Take any opportunity the Lord puts in your path. But instead of just telling people that they're heretics for not following the Torah, just keep the Torah around them. When they ask why, explain the differences that practicing God's mitzvot has made in your life. Because that's something you can witness to. You're a first-hand, your first-hand account. You can tell people, I am, I feel a better person because of keeping the law. Now, I don't want to say, I'm not going to say that you're a bad person because I, you know, you're no worse than I am. I mean, I'm, I'm still a terrible sinner. But I feel like I please the Lord by keeping the law. That's how the Lord speaks to me. Don't just describe Yeshua's love. Reflect it. Let it let Yeshua's love shine through you. Tell you what, do it even if that means being kind to someone who is completely and utterly wrong in their understanding of the scripture. It's very easy to be nice to people who agree with us, isn't it? Yeah. I think Yeshua had a teaching about that. You should look it up. But true love is forgiving, you know, the people who aren't your friends. True love is showing kindness and love and charity to people who don't have your best interests at heart. Don't just tell, and I just did that. I just told you I'm a sinner. Don't just tell people you're a sinner and then start in on how unrighteous they are because they have a ham sandwich for lunch and real bacon with their breakfast. Lord, I admit, sometimes I miss real bacon. Let them see instead how much pain it causes you when you fall short of your and God's ideals. When you miss the mark. Yeah, by the way, that's the literal definition of sin, of chatat, is missing the mark.
There are, as you go to different places, you will find different definitions of sin. And usually there's some variation on doing something that is not what God's will is. That's not a bad definition. But from a linguistic, grammatical standpoint, historical grammatical point of view, which, by the way, is my favorite method of hermeneutics, to sin is to know the goal and not hit it. If I know what's right and I don't do it, I've missed the mark, I've sinned. So in short, to sum this all up into the little one sentence you can take home if you remember nothing else. And how many, how many of you are tired and you're not going to remember anything else I said? Just remember this one sentence. Don't tell, demonstrate. And yeah, that's harder to do. Because we can remember the words off the top of our head. You can remember the, was it four or five spirits? I've never done the, 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 the gospel tract ministries. Was it the four spiritual laws? Because um, you can memorize those and not live them. Um, I've had missionaries come to my door and very rudely give me a tract and tell me how much God loves me and he's willing to forgive all the stuff I do in my life because I'm such a terrible person. Yeah, how much, how much effect do you think they had on you know, turning me to the Lord? Uh, <laughs> this may not surprise some of you. When I was young, I was a little bit of a discipline problem. Are you supposed to be, you know, gasping in disbelief at this point? So my parents, because I needed more discipline, for fourth and fifth grade, they sent me to a Baptist school because they still did corporal punishment. I, I'm somewhat ashamed to admit that the corporal punishment did not turn me into less of a discipline case. It just you know, taught me how to take a beating and not whine about it. What it did do, though, is it kept me away from the Lord more than any other experience in my life. I, had no, I wanted nothing to do with these people who called themselves Christians and showed that little compassion. They talked about God a lot. They very rarely demonstrated his love. And now I'm condemning them and doing the same thing. I'm a terrible person. Good idea at this point to think back on those little bracelets. Do you remember those little bracelets were all popular and all the, all the church groups were wearing them? They said WWJD, we didn't say WWYD. What would Yeshua do? Well, we have examples of what he did. When Yeshua met up with unclean lepers, what did he do? He healed them. Did he tell them, oh, you've obviously done something wrong in your life because you're, you're, you're a leper, you've been stricken. No, he healed them. When Yeshua met blind, lame a man who was such a terrible person, he was—he couldn't even get up and walk, and he couldn't even roll into the, the, the pool of Bethsaida before the other people jumped in. Off. 
Did he condemn him for that? No, he healed him. You've been waiting healing all your life. Faithfully, be healed. How many sinners do you think Yeshua encountered in his ministry? All of them. That's the right answer. Every single person Yeshua ever encountered was a sinner. I'm talking to Yeshua like throughout history, not just while he was on earth. From creation until the end of time, every human he ever encountered who wasn't him was a sinner. He's the only one who isn't. Would you, would, is God right in condemning us to damnation because we're sinners? Yes, absolutely. And yet Yeshua demonstrated love by... Anyone think it was fun to go up on the cross? Think it was easy? I'm ashamed to admit that there was a, a guy the other day... Um, he was obviously, you know, he, he was honestly, honestly homework, honestly homeless. He wasn't just goofing off. He didn't seem like he was, looked like he was down on his luck. And I, I believed him when he looked, he said he hadn't eaten in a few days. And, you know, I could have gone to the bank and got some money and given it to him. But that would have been a little bit of effort and I didn't. And in hindsight, I'm ashamed of that. What would Yeshua have done? beyond and above and beyond what I did, he would have fed him. I could have taken him into the restaurant with me because I had my card with me. I could have bought him a meal, but I didn't. I could have. When you encounter anybody in your life who needs something, who is suffering from a lack of love in their life, you can. And I'm talking about, many of you are very good at this. This congregation is full of some of the most loving people I've ever met. All of us fall at least a little bit short. None of us are perfect. But continue to strive for perfection. In righteousness, yes. But remember that every time Yeshua disagreed with the Pharisees over a law, it wasn't over whether the law should be kept. It was whether or not the law should trump compassion. And he always cited on the side of compassion. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe. Heavenly Father, as we come before you now and we go to leave this place and go and get lunch because we're hungry. We're hungry for food and we're hungry to come closer to you. And Lord, we ask that you would just fulfill both those hungers. Lord, that we be fulfilled in body and fulfilled in mind and fulfilled in spirit. And Lord, that we be so overfilled with spirit that we can't help but share it with those that we encounter. Amen.